folks, there's going to be some curse words in this episode. Not by me, sadly. I wish, but you've been warned. At Glastonbury, that huge music festival that takes place in England every year, it wasn't just artists who took the stage last month. So did abortion. The weekend's music was overshadowed by the U.S. Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. And among the American artists who performed, the backlash was swift. I'm devastated and terrified. And so many women and so many girls are going to die because of this. But is making a moment on stage go viral enough to start a movement? I'm Gustavo Arellano. You're listening to The Times daily news from the LA Times. It's Thursday, July 21st, 2022. Today, the young artists taking on abortion rights in the United States and the 90s feminist rock stars who've been here before. My LA Times colleague and music reporter Susie Exposito recently looked into these rockers who protest past and present. Susie, welcome to the Times. Thanks so much for having me back. Okay, so the only music festivals I've ever been to were Coachella way back in the day. I'm talking about like 2003 and like backyard punk gigs. So I know what Glastonbury kind of is and I know it's big, but how exactly does it play out? Like what happens there? Glastonbury is like the premier music festival in the UK. It's like their Coachella. We love you, Glastonbury! It was founded in 1970, and it happens every year in Worthy Farm, which is in this beautiful pastoral part of England. And over 200,000 people come to the farm, and, you know, they get all muddy. It's very famous for being a rainy summer festival. And then, of course, some of the biggest music stars in the world for whatever year it is go through there. It is a destination festival. So the American artists that performed this year, they had something other than music on their minds when they were on stage. Yes. Well, the festival happened to be taking place on the same weekend that the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, which had, since 1973, protected the constitutional right to have an abortion in the United States. As a result, a number of angry American artists took to the stage and voiced their opposition to the Supreme Court's decision. You had Billie Eilish. Today is a... Really, really dark day for uh, women in the U.S. Phoebe Bridgers. Are there any Americans here? (laughs) Megan Thee Stallion and Olivia Rodrigo sounding off against the Supreme Court decision. I wanted to dedicate this next song to the five members of the Supreme Court who have showed us that at the end of the day, they truly don't give a shit about freedom. All genres, all anger. Yes. I should also add Kendrick Lamar was also at Glastonbury and very upset about the decision. You have a lot of 
artists who, you know, they're young and they're righteously angry about not having the power in their own country to plan their own lives to really take control over their bodies. So beyond the festival, you also saw other musicians and artists being angry about that overturning. Yes. That same weekend, you know, I saw posts from Taylor Swift. I saw tweets from the pop musician Halsey, who's actually been very vocal about being a non-binary person who is also a parent. Across the board, it doesn't matter what genre, like across the board, you saw a lot of different artists, young artists voicing their opposition to the Supreme Court's decision. Almost everyone knew this was coming, especially after the leaking of a draft opinion about it. Mm -hmm. So were you seeing artists talking and tweeting their opinions about this beforehand, leading up to the day that the Roe versus Wade decision was officially overturned? Yes, of course. Like Phoebe Bridgers namely started sharing links to abortion funds. And she even spoke about having an abortion while she was on tour. This was even before the leaked decision and how she talked about being fortunate that she was able to do that on the road. What were the responses to Glastonbury and also messages on social media? Like, how did fans react? An overwhelming majority of these artists' fans responded positively because we're talking about a young generation of rising pop stars, rock stars, rap stars, what have you, who came up because they're empowered. We're talking about women and queer people who are really, really outspoken. And yes, they make pop music. They try and represent themselves, but also speak to their fans the best that they can. So it was heartening for a lot of fans to see their favorite pop stars take up the same causes. It's an issue that affects anyone who's able to get pregnant, which is, you know, a lot of young people. <laughs> of course they would be out. Of course they would be galvanized. Why wouldn't they be? But it's also important for pop stars to use their followings. We're talking about people who have millions of followers on Instagram, on TikTok, on Twitter, and they're doing what they know how to do, which is amplify their messages on these platforms. Coming up after the break, what the past can teach young artists of today about organizing around reproductive freedoms. Susie, this isn't the first time that musicians have rallied around abortion rights, and you recently wrote this great story about a series of benefit concerts called Rock for Choice that took place throughout the 1990s. What were they about and who started it all? So Rock for Choice was an initiative that was brought on by the members of the L.A. grunge band L7, as well as Sue Cummings, who was a journalist at the L.A. Weekly at the time. They worked in tandem with the Feminist Majority Foundation, which is a national nonprofit organization that was founded in 1987 to advance feminist causes. And there was someone in particular that was really instrumental in all this, uh, Donita Sparks. Hello. Hey, Donita. This is Susie Exposito from the LA Times. Hi, Susie. How's it going? It's going great. How are you? Oh, hanging tough. 
Yes. Donita Sparks was one of two singers and guitarists in L7, and she's a firecracker. I was so excited to interview her because even before Rock for Choice, you know, she was a punk in Los Angeles. She was in a bunch of bands and actually did her own benefit show called Rock Against Coat Hangers. The piddly amount of money I raised went to Planned Parenthood. She talked about this in an interview with Sue Cummings in the LA Weekly. And Sue Cummings was just like, that sounds great. I think you should do that again. You know, as L7 was kind of getting more visibility in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, we were doing benefits for Greenpeace and we were doing benefits for Act Up LA and, you know, build a school in Nicaragua and all these benefits, which we loved doing. And so they were like, okay, what if we did something that was bigger than a local show? I kind of was hearkening back to Rock Against Code Hangers and I was like, shit, we're going to have to do this because nobody else is doing this. Let's think about getting an organization happening to put on benefits for pro-choice causes. That's when they got in touch with the Feminist Majority Foundation. What made Donita want to get involved in the abortion fight back then? Well, she grew up with feminist parents. Like, her mom took her to ERA rallies. I grew up as a feminist. I benefited from Title IX. My mother and father raised me to be that way. She grew up going to protests, as did a lot of her contemporaries in the punk and grunge movement. You know, it was in the air in the 80s, for sure. So Mm -hmm. it was like... What was happening was in the 80s, there was a lot of pushback to Roe v. Wade. You had lots of politicians, conservative politicians, trying to find ways to work around the law of the land. And so they were starting to implement parental consent laws. They were instating like gag rules. So like if you went to a federal clinic, a doctor could not advise you to get an abortion. That was illegal at some point. So there were lots of ways that they were trying to undermine Roe v. Wade. One of those things was there were a group of protesters of anti-abortion activists called Operation Rescue. And so they started dialing up these protests all over Los Angeles. There were abortion clinics on Sunset Boulevard in Silver Lake that were being picketed. Donita was working as a designer at the LA Weekly. I'd go back and forth to work and I'd be like, what the fuck? Who is protesting in Silver, like in Los Angeles? It was so bizarre, you know? So I started kind of on my own, just getting up early and defending some clinics, you know? Donita Sparks became a clinic escort and would push back on the protesters to keep them from getting in the faces of these patients trying to go into the clinics. So how does Danita go then from that to getting Rock for Choice off the ground with the rest of L7 and Susan Cummings? They had a conference with the Feminist Majority Foundation. And the way that it was described to me was kind of funny. They talked about being these alternative women at the table with women who were, I mean, of course, very serious about what they did. There's a lot on the line when they met with the Feminist Majority. They were meeting with women in suits who had advocated for more Title IX protections, who really fought for women who were victims of like sexual harassment and discrimination in the workplace. They were meeting these women who'd really been through the ringer. And 
here they are talking about putting on a rock show. <laughs> the women in suits were like kind of suspicious of it. This was so out of their wheelhouse. I think that they really appreciated like, oh, wow, we're going to be involved and like, okay, this is going to be eyeballs. But I think <laughs> that they also wanted, uh, understandably, a little bit of oversight. They, they didn't quite trust these punk girls just yet. <laughs> punk meets professional. Exactly. But I mean, it's a huge respectability thing, which is something that Donita acknowledged in our interview. They were in a more respectable sort of organization fighting the good fight since, you know, God knows how long they were fighting the good fight. Because of how hard they worked to secure a lot of legislation for women in the 80s, here they are and they're like, oh no, who are we aligning ourselves with? What kind of ammo would our opponents have? if we like aligned with the wrong people, which is something that any organization has to think about. But ultimately they joined forces, they decided to team up and they contacted Rick Van Santen from Golden Voice. He was the co-president of Golden Voice, which we now know of as the company that founded Coachella. And it was like, hey, we're gonna lead this We've got these friends, they're in a band called Nirvana, and they're getting really big. And we think we can get them, and it'll be us, and we'll get some of our other friends. Then we got the promoter's golden voice involved, and that's how it went. They made this really formidable team and made something really cool happen. And the first Rock for Choice show happened in 1991, and the headliners were Nirvana and L7, the band Hole, fronted by Courtney Love and another band from San Francisco called Sister Double Happiness. So what does Donita remember about that first Rock for Choice concert? So at the first Rock for Choice concert, a ton of people were just like dying to get into this show. I mean, this was the prime time to see Nirvana whole and L7, right? God, the first show was, it was triumphant. You know, it was like people really wanted to get in, but it was a benefit. I remember- Outside the venue, Donita Sparks ran into Sofia Coppola. She was dating the bassist of the band Red Cross. And they were like, hey, hey, Donita, we want to get into the show. And we were like, hey, cool, you guys can get in, but can you do voter registration in the lobby? <laughs> they said yes. And so apparently they sat in the lobby during the show and signed up a bunch of people to vote. That's really awesome. So what other bands ended up joining Rock for Choice? Like how big did that movement get? It is a really funny hodgepodge of bands. You had bands like Bikini Kill. They're like a, a feminist punk staple in any record collection. You had radio rock bands like Rage Against the Machine signed on, Pearl Jam. Then bands started contacting us, and it was really great. We had no lack of bands. And then later on, you had like Beastie Boys, Korn, no doubt, Primus, like Rob Zombie, all these, wow. all these bands, yeah. Corn, damn. <laughs> I know, right? How long did the shows go for, and what do you think ultimately was the impact of Rock for Choice? So Rock for Choice continued until 2004, and its legacy 
really stress the importance of not just like educating people on abortion. They rallied for people to vote. It's a very small thing, but we started doing these concerts and, you know, Bill Clinton got elected in 92, which was huge. You know, yeah. I think after the first few Rock for Choice concerts, Bill Clinton was elected and this broke the more than a decade of Republican rule in the White House. In the 80s, you had Ronald Reagan followed by George H.W. Bush so Bill Clinton cut through that and signed a series of laws that helps bring back some of the ground that was lost in the Republican era. With abortion rights. Mm-hmm. I think we could have made an ever so slight dent with just, you know... Letting young rock people know that it's okay to give a shit, that it's cool to give a shit. After I published my story, I saw a lot of men actually on Twitter speaking positively about Rock for Choice and saying things like, I had no idea that like women were going through this or I didn't realize what was at stake. So that was extremely important. It was as much like a cultural event as it was a really educational one. More after the break. Susie, so Rock for Choice ended up galvanizing a generation of rock stars to advocate for abortion rights, and they were successful in many ways. What do leaders of that movement today say about then the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe versus Wade? I think a lot of people are very shaken. I saw that it had been overturned, and I was shocked, but also thought, oh, we were so played. Donita said she felt really disappointed. This is exactly why people voted for the Democrats. The Democrats have been talking about codifying Roe into law for years. And she stressed the importance of getting out to vote. But also, in the meantime, there's lots of clinics that have been shut down, even the day of the Roe decision. So it's really, really important to support any kind of like independent initiative that already exists because lots of funds exist today. Did Donita say anything about maybe restarting Rock for Choice? She loves the idea, but she says that... I'm not saying we're done with this issue. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying call up the Feminist Majority Foundation. They're still in business. True. Get it going. You don't need all seven to do a Rock for Choice show. Call your feminist organizations and, and do some benefit. She says that this is something that young people of today need to take the torch on. Like, hey, nobody's going to do this for you. You've got to get out and do it. So that's what I would have to say to the young people. And the good news is, is that they already have. Yeah, and how are you seeing then this new generation of music stars continuing that legacy of Rock for Choice? 
I had a wonderful conversation with an artist from New Mexico. Her name is Amelia Bauer. And she founded an organization called Noise for Now, which is a collective of musicians that are helping raise funds for abortion access in the United States. You know, you have these Rock for Choice alumni like Ad Rock from the BC Boys and Bikini Kill, Tori Amos is prominently listed on the website. But then you also have an increasing number of younger artists joining the cause. And so you can also see like Best Coast on the list. You see Mitski, Soccer Mommy, like a number of artists are now part of this cause. And they've raised over $600,000 for abortion funds all over the U.S., they're actively raising money now. Susie, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you so much, Gustavo, for having me on. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Kasha Brasalian was the hef on this episode, and Mario Diaz mixed and mastered it. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Kasha Brasalian, David Toledo, and Ashley Brown. Our editorial assistants are Madeline Amato and Carlos de Luera. Our intern is Surya Hendry. Our engineers are Mario Diaz, Mark Nieto, and Mike Heflin. Our editor is Kinsey Moreland. Our executive producers are Hasmin Aguilera and Shani Hilton, and our theme music is by Andrew Eatman. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. Don't make us the Puccio Podcasts. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news in the smother. Gracias. Gracias.